0: Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to National Capital. Um, spiritual preparation, let's do that first, using 1 John 1.9, which says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So let's just pause for a moment of silence and then I'll open in prayer. Let us pray. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity to assemble together with the believers in Christ. We know that this is the most important discipline that the believer can execute. This is how we grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, transforming us into the likeness of Christ. We're grateful for this opportunity, and we ask and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Call to worship this morning is taken from Psalms. Chapter 19, Psalms chapter 19, there's some things here in these few verses that are very eye-opening and I'd like to highlight them if you don't mind, Psalms chapter 19 beginning with verse 7, I'm just going to look at a few verses here, Psalms 19 beginning with verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. The law of the Lord, the word of the Lord, is perfect. It converts the soul, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right. So here in Psalms 19, you have divine viewpoint contrasted with human viewpoint where he talks about the commandment of the Lord is pure. It's enlightening the eyes. He proceeds to say the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Proceeds with the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold. Yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them, the statutes and the judgments, your servant is warned. And in keeping them, there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. And keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion or control over me. Then and only then shall I be blameless and I shall be innocent of the great transgression. So you see here that the word of God has such influence and power. And when we look into our message this morning, we're going to see that Throughout the book of James, there is a heavy emphasis on the word of God and how powerful the word of God is as far as saving the soul, transforming the life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned. He does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. But as many as received him to them, he gave them the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved for by grace. You've been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. The objective this morning is to go through James, portions of James. As you know, we've been focusing on phase two salvation. I know it's been a long journey. But I believe that the more that we are familiar with the passages that address phase two, where it's about certain application of verses, then the more we would be able to line up with God's truth, thus applying the word of God to self. So we're going to look at chapter one for just a moment. We're going to hit um, several verses, then we're going to transition to chapter two which will then bleed into chapter 3. So I'm doing this so that we can get the author's flow of thought because we're going to go 1, 2, and 3 this morning. That's going to be the objective. So if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open to chapter 1 of James. And you'll understand why I'm going back to chapter 1. Review is always good. And I know we've been on review for a while, so. but trust me, you're going to appreciate why we're doing this. So... The first verse, by way of reminder, is James chapter 1, 18. Please notice, God is the cause of the new birth. We see this in this verse. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. So please notice, the means of the new birth is expressed by the words, word of truth. Through his will and his word. So the two W's here, will and word. Through his will and through his word. The word of truth. So it was God's will that brought us into existence. That's the new birth, that is, by his will. Moving over to 21, we have the following. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness, sin, and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness, that's humility, the implanted word which is able to save your souls. We have to ask ourselves, what does it mean to save your souls? So that's my question. What does it mean to save your souls? Okay, saved from the power of sin. Very good. Do we have anything that kind of hints to that, Debbie? In this verse? hmm. Or the context? Um, You're right. Yeah, it's. Um, since we're already saved. Mm-hmm. Uh, totally. and hmm. the idea is, James has talked about how we're going to have a lot of trials. That have okay. Very good. You can. (laughs) Very good. So personal preparation is the first thing to do before using the word of God. Please notice. Lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. Then with humility or meekness, receive or welcome the implanted word. What does it mean? to put aside all the filthiness. How do we do that? 1 John 1.9, we always start with 1 John 1.9, which says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But, notice what James is saying here. The word here, lay aside, has the idea of taking off garments. It's the same word that's used to remove garments. Undergarments, clothing. So put aside all filthiness and overflow of what? Wickedness. So if you're caught in some kind of sin, James is telling the believers, look, put that aside. You cannot even approach the word of God until you first lay aside all filthiness. Because only when you can lay aside the filthiness and overflow of wickedness in one's life Then you can welcome with meekness the implanted word. So that word implanted hints to the fact that they're believers and they already received it at phase one because they've been born again. Receive the implanted word. Welcome the implanted word that you already have, which is able now to phase two or save your suke, and that is life. Save your life. And as we go back to verse 1, you'll recall, as Debbie had mentioned, consider it all joy when you encounter all sorts of what? You will encounter trials. But before you can even handle the Word of God and utilize the Word of God, get rid of all the stuff with humility, and then you can welcome with meekness the word that you already receive, which is then able to become useful in your, in your life. You'll be able to deliver your life from the struggles and the tensions that will occur because James said, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. But you need the word of God. You need the word of God at this point, which is able to deliver or save your souls. Then moving on, you'll recall he says, If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a what? A doer, he's like a man observing his face, his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. What does a mirror do? It reflects. Does it reflect reality? Yes, it does. We look and we say, oh my gosh, I'm I'm putting on a few pounds. We don't like that, right? Sometimes it shows us things we don't like, right? But it shows reality. That's what the Word of God is. It shows reality. So if someone is a hearer of the Word and not a doer of the Word, he's like a person who goes to the mirror. He sees himself, but he goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. So you're like the person who goes to the mirror and says, okay, got to tuck my shirt in, but I'm in a hurry. You forget. You forget. That's the person who approaches the word of God. He hears it, but he doesn't apply it. Very clear that James wants us to be doers of the word. So it shows the real you. It exposes what you look like, but it can't change you. The mirror can't change you, right? You have to partake. You have to exercise what? Volition. You have to do something about it. The mirror is there. It's on the wall. It says, oh, Freddie, tuck your shirt in. No, you do it for me. Will it change me? No. I have to exercise my volition. Right? So the word of God is reflecting what you need to do. Get rid of the evil. Get rid of the filth. And then welcome the truth that comes from the word. And when you do so, what will it do? It will help and deliver you. Deliver your life. And we're going to see what that looks like in just a moment. It won't comb your hair. It won't brush your teeth. You have to exercise your volition. Likewise, the word of God shows you what you need to do. And James is driving home the point of being doers, not hearers only. In the context of the recipients of the le- who received the letters, they were all listening, but they were not doing. They were hearers but not doers. Sometimes in church, we hear a lot of stuff. Oh, I love what he said. What good is that if you don't apply it? As I've heard before, you say amen on Sunday, but in in the middle of the week, God's going to test whether or not your amen is good on Wednesday. So you may agree with the message on Sunday, but how about Wednesday morning, Wednesday afternoon, when you get hit hard with a trial? Is the word of God, is the mirror going to deliver your soul or your life from that dilemma? Can you then count it all joy when you hit, got hit with a trial? Knowing it's the testing of what? What is it testing? Your faith. It's the testing of your faith. The doctrine that you've stored up in your soul. So God is testing Whether or not you believe what you said you believe in. When you said amen on Sunday, are you going to say amen on Wednesday? Can you get to that point? What good is it to just hear it, but it comes out the other ear? Does no good. Can it deliver your soul? Can it deliver your life at that point? Not at all. It can't even save your life, your soul, because you're not doing what it says. You have not welcomed the word of God in your life. But first, got to clean the brush. you got to clean the weeds. But if you don't do that, starting with 1 John 1, 9, and you don't move all the crud that accompanies your life, your behavior, you remember the acronym MOVE? M-O-V. M is mental sins. O is overt sins. V is verbal sins. You, you violate any of these, you break fellowship with God. So what do you do at that point? First John 1 John nine, but let's just say you have a tendency of exercising vulgarity. You have a weakness of vulgar sins, a bad tongue. Deal with it, fix it, because that's part of the brush that James is talking about. Got to get rid of it. And we're going to see in chapter three alone that he says if a person can control and bridle his tongue, you can control the rest of your body. Did you know that? It impacts us that well, that, that much. If you can control your tongue, you can get control of the rest of your body. So the mirror shows the real you. But if you're just gonna look and do nothing about it, does no good. If anyone among you Thinks he is religious and does not what? Bridle his tongue. What's another word for bridle? Control. Control, what's that saying? If you think you're religious on the external, you got all that going. But your words, you're cussing up a storm. Well, this one's religion is what? Useless. Look at what he says here. If anyone among you thinks on the external, he's good, but does not bridle his tongue. That's another way of saying, if you don't control the words that come out of your mouth, deceives his own heart, this one's religion is no good. It negates what you just did. On the external, you look good, but the internal... It's worth nothing. In fact, James just says, it's useless. You might as well not have done it. You got bad language. You just ruined all the good work. Remember when you're growing up? You do all these good things for parents, daddy and mommy. And then you do one bad thing. Here you, you clean your room. You vacuum the house. You pull the weeds. You did all these good things and then you slip once. What happens? Daddy just forgets all the good stuff. You remember that? But, Dad, I just, I cleaned my room, I vacuumed the house, I did the dishes. What about all that? One thing blows the whole thing, right? Remember that? James is saying the same thing here. If anyone thinks he's religious but does not control his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. So on the external, you're doing good. You're coming to church. You have a Bible. You open your Bible. You pray, but your mouth is gutter. What's it? Gutter ball? Gutter mouth. That becomes useless. And we're going to see, by the time time we get to chapter 3, we're going to see why James is so hard on language. Now, if anybody here has a weakness in um, language... I'm not saying you're not saved anymore. We all have weaknesses, okay? I'm just showing you what James is saying. To James himself, he says, look, you may be good, but if your language is substandard or if you can't bridle your tongue, your religion is useless. That's all I'm saying. Each one of us has areas of weakness. We, Our sin nature trends one way or the other. Your weakness may not be my weakness my weakness may not be your weakness we all fall short all have fallen short of the glory of god so i'm not pointing fingers i'm just pointing what james says if you're good on the outside this one's religion is useless and he doesn't even question the religion he's just saying look you're good on the outside but if you have a bad mouth gutter mouth your religion is useless That now takes us to one of the passages in chapter 2, which is a heavy passage that the lordship proponents, advocates, love to use. It's taken from James 2, 14. We're going to go through this slowly. We're not going to spend too much time because I want to take us through up to chapter 3. What does it profit? What's the benefit, my brethren? So the context is, He's talking to the believers, right? That's in-house language, brethren. If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can faith save him? You see the challenge here. What does it benefit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that kind of faith save him? Can faith save him? Most lordship advocates use this verse to show the necessity of measurable fruits to genuine faith. James clearly makes works a condition for salvation in this verse. But the question we have to ask is, but saved in what sense? Or saved from what? If you'll, you'll notice here in this one verse, James is not talking about heaven or hell or the lake of fire. He's just saying, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? So heaven, hell, going into heaven, going into the lake of fire is not mentioned here or within the the context of James 2. The way the question is formed here requires a negative answer. James is picking up actually the theme of 121, I believe, because the uh, in the first time he talks about being saved is in James chapter 1 so if you have your bibles let's hear the rustling of pages James chapter 1 maybe i can flip it here on the slide as well but if you have your bibles James 1:21 we just read that right can someone read it again, please? In nice and strong, booming voice for the recording. putting aside all of Okay, very good. So receive the implanted word which is able to what? Save your souls. And another way of saying souls is your life. So that's the first time he mentions the word save. Now he goes in chapter 2, verse 14. What does it benefit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Here's our verse. I did have it here, so... But I want us to look at something. This is very, very important, okay? We're going to look at um, the context of saved. Why James even said this, which is able to save or deliver your souls. So how are we going to be delivered? And the question is delivered from what? Hmm? Our sins. That's called phase two, right? Right? What's that, David? You were going to say something? Okay. Saved from, here it is, context. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, or that's, that word is parasmas, it's also for trials. Blessed is the man, happy is the man who endures temptation or trials, for when he has been approved, he will receive the what? Crown of life. So if you endure, you tough it out. When approved, you will receive the crown of life. Okay? So which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Do you love him? It also says, remember what Jesus said, John fourteen fifteen. If you love me, obey me. Also in John 14, 21, 23, and in fact, let's turn there because this is important to see what the Lord himself said. John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So John 14. There's a few instances here, but there is one that is very telling. John 14. John 14, 15. If you love me, maybe you do, maybe you don't. Hopefully you do. If you love me, keep my commandments. Look at what what it says in twenty one. He who has my commandments and tereo or keeps them, it is he who loves me. You get the point. Keep the commandments. If you love me, obey me keep my commandments love me obey me John 14:15 says love me keep my commandments if you love me keep my commandments John 14:15 now in verse 21 he who keeps my commandments he who has my commandments and o them or keeps them it is he who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my father and i will love him And manifest or show myself to him. Look at 23. Jesus answered and said to him. If anyone loves me. He will keep my word. And my father will love him. And we will come to him. And make our home with him. But look at 24. He who does not love me. He does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. So if you, don't keep the of, if you don't keep the commandments of Christ, you're technically not keeping the commands of the Father as well. Verse 24, he who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. So they're working together. So what you're hearing from Christ comes ultimately from the Father. So if you don't keep the words of Christ, that means you don't love him. You're not keeping his commands. You're not loving him. You're not loving the Father. You're not loving the Father. They will not dwell with you. They will not manifest themselves to you. So let no one say, going back to James 1.13 now, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full-grown, brings its full, when it's full grown, brings forth death. Here's what I want you to see here. So it's the implanted word that can save your life. And here, let's look at closely at 12 through 15. There is the sense of pregnancy wrapped up especially in the tail end, right? Remember, we kind of covered this last time, but I want to tighten this up just a little bit here so that we can see what James is arguing. When desire, which is equated to mom, is nurtured by volition, over time it gives birth to what? Anyone see it there on 15? What does it give birth to? What does mom give birth to? Sin. Do you guys see that? It gives birth to sin. Right there in the tail end or in the middle of 15, I'm using the word mom so that you can see what James is saying. When desire slash mom has conceived, and how long does it take before mom gives birth? What's the typical nine months? So there's time. There's over time, when mom has finally conceived, it gives birth to what? So there's a time element in here. James is carefully using the illustration of birth. When desire or mom has conceived, it gives birth to sin. So there's a pregnancy term here. What else? How many births are here? Can you see it? How many births? Pregnancy and births. Here, birth. One. And what does it give birth to? Sin. There's another one there, hidden. Physical birth. Okay, that's physical birth. But here in the text, there's another one that I've seen as I was preparing for this. Okay, it's in nature, but in the text itself, what else do you see? <clears throat> okay, so the mom, the, the yes, so mom has a grandchild here. You see it? Let me slow it down. When mom or desire has conceived, given birth, it gives birth to sin. When it is full grown, the sin or the child is full grown, it brings forth what? It gives birth itself, which is called death. Did you you see it now? So there's the grandchild. Death is the grandchild to desire. But please notice, when mom has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, remember there's a time element here, if it's not dealt with with volition, it brings forth death. So now going back to this. Does it make sense now? This is chapter 1, verse 21. And please notice, This verse, 12 to 15, comes before 21. James has just said, look, when he has been... If you endure temptation, you'll be approved, and when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life. However, when you're tempted, when desire has conceived, if you've not dealt with that properly, then it will give birth to sin, and sin, when it is full-grown, will give birth to death, physical death. Because if sin is not dealt with, it could lead to death, physical death. You find this in James chapter 5. In fact, let's turn there. I know some people, we we have differing views on this, but this is why I have um, concluded that I think it's referring to physical death, <clears throat> But having different views is not necessarily bad. This is just my my interpretation. Take a look at James 5, <clears throat> verse 19. David, could you read 19 to 20? James 5, 19 to 20. There's that word again, soul or life, suke. So if you if you go back and link that to James chapter one, one twenty one, James one, fourteen, you see that he's using the same terminology. Right? So if you plug it in back here in verse 20, 21, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his what? Ways, will save a life. From death and cover a multitude of sins. So in other words, if if you guys see me at the bar and I, you know, here I am getting drunk, getting drunk, getting drunk. And then I go, I'm in the bar and I have all the, I have a bottle. I'm taking fentanyl and I'm overdoing it. And I'm getting drunk. If you come and intervene and stop me and say, Freddie, that's not good. Don't judge me. But you turn me away from my sins. Can you spare me from death? If you mediate and get in my way, is it possible to spare me from death, physical death? Yes, you can. You care enough to turn me away. That's what 20 says, doesn't it? Let him know that he who turns a sinner away from the error of his way will save a suke will save a life from death. Is that always the case when you turn someone away from their sin? Are they always going to die? Not necessarily, but you remember the pregnancy term that James uses right here in 12 to 15? Look again, please. When each one is tempted, when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed, then when desire has conceived over time, it gives birth to sin. And sin, if it's not dealt with, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. What other death is there if you are going to say it's spiritual death? Because we're out of fellowship when we sin, right? So I conclude that it's got to be more than just spiritual death or broken fellowship. Broken fellowship has already taken place when he's had desire and he hasn't dealt with that. We can be tempted and we can circumvent it by exercising First John 1, 9. But what do we find later on? Put aside the wickedness. Put aside the filthiness. Why? Because it could control our life and we could wind up dead. The consequences to sin can be physical death. Let's be honest. Do you know people who are living in such a way that if we don't get in the way and talk them out of it, they may die? Of course, I think that's what James is arguing here. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, but for when he has been approved, when you do the right thing, he will receive the crown of life. And then he proceeds to say, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. God will never tempt you because God himself cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. He's not behind that. But each one, here's the source, each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires. His own desires is rooted in the sin nature and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, that's why I ask all the moms, how long does it take before you finally give birth? Nine months. So if you're not doing anything by that time, eventually the baby will come. And in context, the baby here is equivalent to sin. When when it's conceived, when desire, when the mom has finally given birth or conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, becomes an adult, brings forth grandkids or death. So going back to 14, James 2.14, an important interpretive key to this passage, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, is the spiritual condition. We always ask, what's the spiritual condition of the recipients of the letter or the context? Who is it written to? And we know that they're believers, right? We saw that in the opening of James 1, brethren, James 2, brethren, chapter 2, verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1. Brethren, 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 throughout this letter. Brethren. So, in fact, here in verse 14, what does it profit my brethren? So, they are believers. So, he's not talking to anybody. He's talking to specifically believers. Now, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can faith save him? But please notice, let's turn on our reading glasses here. Let's zoom in closely. I'm going to ask you, is James calling to question the faith of the one who says he has no faith? Look closely. Is he calling to question the person, the faith of the one who says he has faith? Please notice, it says, if someone says he has faith, Could this be possibly a possessor, a professor rather than a possessor? Could it be? Is James now questioning the person's faith? Use your magnifying reading glasses. What does it say? Is he saying you don't have real faith? Is that what you see there? Okay, he's been saying you got to be a doer, not just a hearer. But please look closely. Is he questioning this person's faith? That's my question. Is he calling that into question? Okay, very good. But the question I have because this is one of the reasons why lordship argues that you have to have works. Okay. So, my question is is James questioning the faith? No. He's not. Okay. He said someone has faith. Mhm. Very good. You you are wearing your glasses too, I see that. Yeah, I Maybe it's the glasses. So what is he questioning then? Does it say walk? Is the word walk there? Okay. <laughs> So, James is not challenging whether the person has faith, right? Because it says he has faith. If someone says he has faith, right? So, faith is there. That's not being questioned. What is he questioning? Is the word production there? after, uh, yeah, after he, the faith is his faith in the word. hmm Okay. Okay. I mean that's what I'm getting out of that. Let's start with this. You know, uh you know, Very good. That's a lot there. That's a profit, um, works—that's that's a lot, but that's good, Everett. I like that. You can say. That pistis, the the faith there is, can it benefit? Yeah, you sure can, but that's in the first question. How many questions are there in this verse? Let's first ask that question. There's two questions. Very good. Two questions in the one verse. You guys see it? Let's, Let's hone in on that. So maybe that'll help us um, understand this section here. See, James is not challenging whether the person has faith, but only the profit of the faith without works. You see that? What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? So what James is questioning is not the person's faith, but the profit of the faith without works. You see that? Right there. So let's set another way. You have good doctrine, but will that save or help a person from their problems if not applied? Remember, we've been going through and uh, seeing the the importance of getting rid of the weeds so that the word can save your life, right? So we're, now James is going to introduce a hypothetical situation, which follows 14, right? He says, okay, you say you have faith, but no works. Well, how about this? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warm and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus, faith by itself. There it is right there, verse 17. Faith by itself with no works, if it does not have works, is what? What's that how? Worthless, Worthless, necras, Worthless or dead. It's good for nothing. How many of you have ever had a car battery die? Your front yard, right? You go in there, you put the key in, you do this, and you hear nothing. Do you still have a car? But a dead car. It's a real car, but it's dead or useless at that point. It's still there. It's existent. It exists. But it's dead or useless. So James is saying faith by itself, if it does not have works, is useless. Example, if someone comes to you naked and destitute of daily food, and then you say, depart in peace, be warm and filled. I'm sorry, sir, we're in the middle of class. Would you please come back? I know you're hungry. Please come back. Uh, there's no one there. <laughs> but I'm saying if someone comes in the class here and says, uh, Vanessa, tell them we're in the middle of study. They're interrupting us. I know they're naked. They don't have food, but and and no food, no clothes. Uh, We're in the middle of a good study here. Please come back. uh, Dan, could you take care of them? That's kind of the example here. One of you says to the person who is in need of food and naked, you tell them, depart in peace, be warm and filled. We'll talk to you later. Come back next Sunday. You can have some of the snacks that we'll have. But you do not what? give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it benefit? What good is it? You have all this doctrine, but doctrine by itself, faith by itself, just slice the word there, faith, forward slash faith or doctrine by itself. If it does not have works, it's dead or useless. It's good for nothing. Don't be a hearer only, but be a doer that's james's argument all the way through from the very beginning of chapter one he says look the word of god can save your life can deliver whether applied to self or applied to someone else case in point right here 15 to 17 someone is in need of help you don't help them what good is it if you don't have works to back that back that up debbie Mm-hmm. You're not that person, right. right? However, when you just look are you saying that if you don't do these works, if you don't do these works, you can <clears> have <throat> physical death itself? Yes. Because if you don't apply the doctrine, if you don't put the filthiness away, the evil away, could that result in death un- sin unto death? So let's say I'm not applying the word of God to life and I just get drunk and I take fentanyl, I overdose on drugs, I'm violating principles that are stated in the word. So if you're going back to verse, yeah. Okay. I was not. Mm-hmm. So if you were not going back to that verse then would, would make sense. Yeah. Because it's always a doer of the word. So if we're not going to apply the word of God to life and receive it with meekness it's not going to be no any good to us. James, that's why I took us to James five. If you don't turn them away from their sin, they could die. Now I'm just saying. Oh, we, will we die? That's what no. Asking. No, no, I'm not. Yeah, very good. So, yeah. No, I'm not saying that we will die if we don't help them. Yeah. Very good. Thanks for correcting me because that, no, I'm not saying that we will suffer the consequences of not applying, yeah, not helping. But is that sin? I would say it is because now we're told here by virtue of what we see in the text, we should help them. But we're not going to die because we're not applying it, because let's be honest, how many times do we not apply the word in our life? We'd be dead meat. I would have been dead a long time ago. right? How often do we exercise first John one nine? every second? every five seconds? every day. See? So we have the priv- privilege now of using that and going to the Word of God and being a plier and a doer of the Word so that we can be a healthy believer in Christ, okay? We're supposed to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. This is why the phase two salvation is saved from the power of sin. This is so important. If we're not seeing points like this, we're missing out. We're really missing out. The context of chapter one, two to 14, how many of us knew the, pregnancy, uh, the terms, pregnancy terms that are detailed in chapter 1 results in birth of, to sin and even birth to death, sin and death. If we don't deal with it properly, it could, not that it will always, but it could result in sin. So if we're not applying the word of God to life, it could, not that it would, it could. Result in sin or death. Not always. Even in fact, Paul says there is a sin that leads unto death. But I'm not speaking about that now, he said. Yeah. It produces death. Right there. In the text itself, it produces death. So if we don't deal with the desire, what's the desire? Mombi. If we don't deal with that, what's desire? Our thoughts. So we can deal with it through the word of God as we brush off the sin, receive the word of God that's been implanted so that it can save our what? Our life. That's the whole phase two salvation, right? Phase two. We're not worried about phase one or phase three yet. Phase two. So when you look at that closely, it starts to pop. Hey, I see now that sin, if it's not dealt with, can over time conceive. And then once it conceives, it gives birth to sin. And over time, that results in death. If not dealt with, at stages, conception, birth, grandchild. But that's that requires thought and close examination of the word. So now, we still are good with time. We're now in chapter 3. Now James talks about the tongue. For we all stumble, oh Wait, uh, my brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For if we stumble, for we all stumble in what? Many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. I want to bring out a few things here. First of all, the structure of verse 1 is such that it forbids a practice that was going on. There are many of them wanting to be teachers. And James comes out and says from the gate, let not many of you become teachers. Why? Knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Stop the practice, many of you, from becoming teachers. That's another way of saying it. The tongue is the teacher's chief tool. Yet it is the means whereby all of us stumble the most. You find this in verse 2. The link between teaching and stumbling is indicated by the word for at the beginning of verse 2. The action expressed by the participle knowing precedes the action of the verb become. This means that the accountability involved in teaching should be understood before one takes the responsibility of teaching. In the last half of verse 1, It shows that there is good reason for not becoming a teacher. Teachers have a stricter judgment. They have a greater responsibility because of the instrument of their work is the tongue. And it wields great influence. And as such, deep involvement with truth increases accountability. So now... I want to throw up verse 2 so that we I can make a couple of comments here just verse 2 alone. The word all in verse 2 is in an emphatic form. It stresses that there are no exceptions to what James is saying. The emphatic form is followed by the phrase in word. So all inward it is in the emphatic position. The usual word for, you see the word man here? He is a perfect man. You see that? The word there, the usual word for man is anthropos. But that's not the word here. That's the generic word and can be, can take in women also. But this is not the word for man here. James uses anir, which is often used to mean husband. So, he may well have in mind a quality of a good husband. So, in other words, men who are married, if anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect husband. Able also to bridle the whole body. So, that word... Man is anir. So it sounds like James is talking about the quality of a good husband here. He doesn't use anthropos, he uses anir. So it seems like he could be hinting to what makes a good husband. A good husband is one who could bridle his his words, control his words, does not stumble in word. He is a perfect anir or a perfect husband and as such able also to bridle the whole body the word stumble is used by james for a sin committed against god's word and this could be seen in the case of james 2:10 david could you read james 2:10 So the word stumbling there is a synonym for sinning. What translation do you have? We could pray for that. <laughs> yeah, I, it is a. it has a lot of good notes. So let me read the real Bible. The New King James. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I, I didn't mean to say that. All Bibles are good. James 2.10 says in the New King James, for whoever shall keep the law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. Did you hear that? So the word stumbling is a synonym for sinning. And here it is used again in James 3.2. So it's used by James for a sin committed against God's word. This is easily seen in James 2.10, which is what we read. It's a synonym for sinning. So now, so he's building on the words that we use. And he says something interesting here in 3 and 4. Please look up there in the slides. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us and we turn their whole body, right? Look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by the small rudder wherever the pilot desires. So the bo- the point common to each illustration of the power of the tongue is this. Each is very small in the relationship to the influence influence it exerts. The horse has both size and power all guided by the bit in the mouth. The ship here in verse 4 is acted upon by the powerful forces of nature, and yet the tiny rudder sets its direction. The ideas involved are guidance, ability to control, and influence in both verses here. And then the next two verses, I think that's as far as we'll be able to get today. We'll look at verses 5 and 6 now. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body. And sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. So this verse shows that self-centeredness is the thing the tongue boasts or busies, it, bu- busies itself with the most. You see that in the opening of verse 5. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. The tongue is viewed from the standpoint of its contents, for it holds the very world of iniquity, or in other words, for that is evil. Its extensiveness is seen in that it defiles the entire body. And all its effects are pictured as settling on fire the course of life. James point points to its source, set on fire by hell. Metaphorically speaking, this emphasizes the potential harm that can be caused by the words we speak. Just as fire can spread and cause destruction, the tongue, when used recklessly, can have severe consequences. So let me close with a few points of observation here just to help help us remember. It's only three. Number one. God is the cause of the new birth. We found this in James 1.18. For it comes about in the exercise of the two W's, will and word. The means of the new birth is expressed by the word's word of truth. And that talks about his will and his word. Will and word. Point number two. Personal preparation is the first thing to do before using the Word of God put out the weeds right put out the wickedness put out get rid of the evil, the filthiness, all the evil and we do that by confession of sin followed by stopping all the evil We tend to think well just first John one nine that's true but if you're still playing with the evil what good is to, what good is it to first John 1 nine so start with first John one nine. Recover the fellowship of God the Holy Spirit. Now you have his influence, his empowerment that makes it possible to walk away from all the filth. But don't do it simultaneously. Don't just say, I'll confess it on Monday. You know what? It's Friday night, let me just I'll confess it Saturday night. Let's go to happy hour, let's get wasted Saturday out, first John one nine. I'll rebound. No, 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 no. Stop. If you want to use the word of God to life, humble yourself and receive the word that has already been implanted in you. 1 John 1-9, now you have his direct influence. Now you can walk. You have his empowerment. But don't say, oh, 1 John 1-9, Saturday. Or after church. No. So number three. Last one. A mirror shows the real you. It exposes what you look like, but it can't change you. You have to exercise your volition preceded by dealing with all the filth. Confess your sins, but get rid of the filth. But remember, the word of God shows the real you. Do something about it. It exposes what you look like, but it can't change you. You must exercise your volition. It won't comb your hair or brush your teeth. You must do it yourself by exercising your own volition You take the divine viewpoint from the word and squash the human viewpoint, right? How many times have we said divine viewpoint, divine viewpoint, that's coming from the word of God? Well, set your minds on the things above and you will experience life and what? Peace. Set your minds on the things of the flesh, death. Take your pit, okay? Thank you for your time. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you as always for revealing to us your word, the truths that come from scripture. We know that the word of God is alive and powerful. We know that it never comes back void. And so as we apply it to life, it truly can save our soul. It can save our life. So Father, we know it's been implanted in our hearts, in our souls. And so we just have to humble ourselves and deal with the roots and the weeds that can sometimes get in the way. Though we are saved once and for all, we will never have to question that. We do have to deal with phase two, which means dealing with all the weeds, confessing our sins on a regular basis while at the same time making decisions to apply the word of God, not just simply hearing it, but adjusting our lives so that it will align with what your word has revealed. Help us, Father, to conform into the image of Christ as we take in your word transforming our lives through the renewing of our minds. We ask and pray all of these things through Christ's name. Amen.